Hi. Hi. Thank you all for coming. I'm Pike Melinowski. I'm an independent producer, and I've worked for different public radio shows uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, but in the past couple of years, I've also been producing uh, audio walks and installations for museums. And um, I'm Chrissy Clark. I'm an audio documentary maker and the senior reporter for Marketplace's newly launched Wealth and Poverty Desk. That's what I do by day. Um, in, in my free time and also in Pikes, um, as we were mentioning yesterday in, at the breakfast, we both love wandering around um, through cities and getting lost and finding the cool weird stuff and stories that are hidden in their nooks and crannies. And over the last few years, we've both been experimenting with what a wonderful medium audio is for helping unearth and share those stories um, and also what great tools these guys can be, smartphones and cell phones of all sorts. Um, and so in this session, we're going to be exploring some of our own adventures in location-based audio um, by sharing some of our own experiments, successes and mistakes, and hopefully to inspire you guys to try your own things. So audio tours for cities have been a while, uh, around for a while, and <clears throat> um, it's, it's not entirely new, but we think this is an especially exciting time for them. Um, so in about 2005, we had the podcast revolution, and we've heard a lot about that the past couple of days. Um, and, and the podcast really detached our listening experiences from the radio, but now these smartphones are making another kind of attachment possible to where the stories actually take place. So um, before we dive into some of the specific projects that we want to share with you, and then we'll also open it up to questions, um, but first we thought it would be helpful for each of us to spend about five minutes or so telling you about how we each first came to location-aware, location-based uh, storytelling. It's something that I've started to call narrative geology. Um, I kind of made that phrase up, um, but I'll explain what I mean more about it in a moment. I will also, in the next five minutes, tell you about a vision that I had in the desert. That's your teaser. Um, uh, but so before I get to that vision, uh, a little context. Um, part of my love of story and place probably has something to do with the fact that I'm a fifth generation Californian. And once upon a time in 1848, my great great grandfather came to California on a mule. Um, the result of having so much family history in one place is that as a kid, whenever we would drive anywhere, my dad would point out the window and he would, uh, and as we passed by a place, he would say, that used to be something else. So that wind farm, and that's actually the real wind farm, um, used to be the site of your great-great-grandfather's general store. And that was actually my great-great-grandfather's general store. And that highway leading up to the Golden Gate Bridge used to be the world's coolest jungle gym. My dad actually, uh, claims that he climbed up the scaffolding of the Golden Gate Bridge when it was being built. Um, I don't know if I actually believe that, but I, what I do know from what he told me um, over the years and over the course of those car trips is that a landscape is really kind of made of stories, layers and layers of stories, like geologic strata is kind of how I think of it. And that's actually what inspired me to become a journalist, to find those stories and to share them, and in the hopes that we can all kind of understand the world better, because I think that the more we understand about the places that we move through day to day, the more care we take in the world and the more care we take a about for the other people that are moving through those same places. I actually think that the best journalism is like a map. It sort of shows you where you are in relation to others. It provides a sense of topography, a glimpse into a new world, or a better understanding of a familiar one. 
So here's an example of what I mean after all that highfalutin language. Um, I did a radio story a few years ago um, that I think kind of illustrates some of these ideas um, for a show called Weekend America where I was a staff reporter. Um, and the story involves this building here, uh, 710 Montgomery Street, which is in San Francisco's financial district. It's now a small plates restaurant, which is what most of San Francisco is now. Um, but it has buried inside of it part of the story for why San Francisco, of all places on earth, is the gay capital. You know, I, growing up, it's sort of like, why this city in, uh, compared to any other city? Um, and so part of why actually has to do with this building, 710 Montgomery Street, because 70 years ago, this building was a place called the Black Cat Cafe. Um, and this guy, Jose Saria, would worked at that cafe and he would dress in drag, he was a waiter there, and he would host a cabaret show. And this is what it sounded like. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And once again, I welcome you on behalf of the working staff of the Black Cat. That's actually archival sound from, from, that, from his show. He drew people from all across the country. Where are you from, sir? Estabula, Ohio. Ohio? Did you hear about the Black Cat in Estabula, Ohio? You did? Isn't that bad? <laughs> So he was obviously a very charismatic person, and he would expose tourists from all around the country um, to this sort of proto-gay rights movement that he was single-handedly leading from this cafe, cafe, mostly by way of opera tunes. He would uh, change the words of uh, well-known arias into funny kind of gay pride anthems. Girl on a motorbike looks like a diesel dyke from Rigoletto. So um, I actually, I, I tracked Jose down um, when I was working on this story a few years ago. He's actually sadly died since, since I met him, but when I, when I did meet him, he was in his 80s. He lived in a trailer park near Palm Springs, and um, I asked him to sing a bit of some of his songs, and that was one that he sang for me. He was an amazing person. Um, and so with songs like that, Jose basically kind of gave birth to the gay rights movement at this cafe before it had existed in San Francisco or anywhere else in the world. And the reason he could get away with it here in most other places, or in San Francisco, most of other places he would have done this, he would have been shut down. You know, there were, um, there, there were laws against talking about this sort of stuff back, the, back then. And it, the reason he didn't get shut down was strangely because of a local post-prohibition tax policy. Um, because back in the 1940s, most cities were actually regulated, they regulated their bars with a sort of morals police. Um, and so, you know, they watched carefully what was going on in them. But in San Francisco, bars were regulated by the tax board, and they didn't care what the hell happened in the bars as long as they made money. So they kind of turned a blind eye to Jose's songs, and voila, a gay mecca was born. So that story, locked in the walls of this, uh, this building, 710 Montgomery Street, is one example of kind of a narrative landscape and how the peculiarities of one place, one local character, one local tax policy kind of created a cafe that allowed a man to help change the world. And that's the kind of story geology that I'm talking about. The cool thing is that you can do this sort of anywhere um, you can pick a random place, mine it with your storytelling pickaxe, and find stories buried there. 
which brings me to the vision that I had in the desert. Um, almost 10 years ago, I was driving across Utah, um, and I was in this really desolate area where almost nobody lives. Um, I was actually on my way to start a job where with Adam Burke, who is in the audience right now. <laughs> um, and. Um, and I saw this house in the distance, um, and it was really hot, and I was a little delirious, and I kept wondering who the hell would live in this house in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I think I had been sitting in front of a computer for many days before that, and and so had in my mind kind of surfing and surfing the net. And I had this urge to click on the cabin, like you would click on a hyperlink, um, to hear the stories that were buried inside. And back then, you know, this was 10 years ago, this was not possible. The world is not made of hyperlinks. You can't click to click on places to learn about them. But now, thanks to things like our smartphones and, and other gadgets that we keep in our purses and our pockets, it kind of is possible. So um, in a little bit, I'm going to tell you a little more about some of the projects that I've done to help um, experiment with and take advantage of this new technology, GPS, um, all these things that are helping us uh, click on the world so that we can kind of tell its secrets using audio. Um, but first, Pike is going to tell you a little bit about his journey to narrative geology, or what do you call it? Um, Location-based audio, <laughs> I guess. Um, so my first radio project uh, was a portrait of a street in Copenhagen. Um, and at that time, I thought of myself as a poet. I'd never made radio before. This is a picture of uh, my poet friend and collaborator, René Shang Jensen, flying over the street. And um, we had been reading a lot of Apollinaire, this French surrealist poet. And we were especially inspired by one of his poems called Monday Rue Christine. Um, it's a poem that reads as a kind of map of a street in Paris, um, which happens to be the street where Gertrude Stein later lived, uh, the poet who was doing to literature what the surreal, what the painters uh, this were, what the surrealists were doing to painting. Uh, and this poem, it collages or it, it makes a kind of montage out of overheard conversations, uh, fragments of news, billboard signs, and observations that the poet is making. And we wanted our sound poem to work like this poem. Um, we didn't want to have narrative. We didn't like the authority that comes with making assumptions about what a listener might want to hear. Uh, we wanted to be as true as possible to the place, uh, to explore all these different ways of looking at a street. And um, then we wanted the narrative to grow out of, out of that on its own. Uh, so we interviewed people on the street, shop owners, we collected found texts, we even shot videos, and we brought these videos back into the studio and had people describe what they were looking at. Um, this is a picture of one of the many maps that we drew while we were working on the piece. Uh, so basically, we, we wanted to make radio where we weren't in control of the listener's experience, uh, where, like in this Apollinaire poem, the reader can make his own story out of the fragments. Uh, which is, of course, impossible because we're making sound and so there's time and inadvertently there's a narrative simply because something comes before something else on a timeline. Uh, but we didn't really know that. It took us half a year to figure that out. Uh, we spent eight months doing these 32 minutes and we kind of failed. Um, but it was an important early failure and I feel like, in a way, 
I keep trying to do this. I keep asking myself this question, how can I tell stories without a narrative? Um, and by this I mean stories without a beginning, middle and end and plots and stuff. And maybe it's because I don't like authority or, um, um, but of course telling a story is always uh, assuming a, a kind of a role of authority. Uh, so why tell stories then? I think because I love the way of putting together separate images and ideas creates friction and tension and new meaning in the head of the listener uh, and in my head. Uh, and when I look back at my work, I find that I like to assume the role of the listener, of coming to a place or a story fresh without um, too much knowledge on forehand. Um, so most recently I went and I did a montage from a small um, town in Texas called Poetry. Um, I found this picture online. I was Googling something and I came across this picture of this water tower and um, I decided to go down there a few days later. Um, and Poetry is not really a town, it's a, it's a country road with a gas station on it and uh, three churches and a taxidermist and uh, about 500 people live there. Um, and uh, it's about, it's an hour uh, east of Dallas. Um, it's old uh, ranching land, but um, people are moving out from Dallas and commuting. Um, uh, so I was intrigued, of course, uh, by this double meaning of the word uh, of the place. And um, of course, everything in poetry is poetry. Um, so I went down there and I sat myself on a bench uh, outside the gas station and talked to people. One of the people I meet outside the store is Rick Rice. What is poetry to me? He lives alone in a trailer with his dog. Just a lot of hard work. A lot of hard working people. He has cancer and the doctor told him he had six months to live. A lot of hard-working people. You can see that just driving up and down the road. The cattle, the bells, the hay sitting everywhere. He came out of the store with a pack of cigarettes in his hands. It's just a lot of hard-working people trying to make an honest dime. They ain't gonna make a dollar anymore. Those days are gone. I wonder if anyone ever recorded this man's voice. And I shiver with the thought that this might be the last time anyone does. Hard working people. That's what you're looking at in poetry. People want to know what hard work is. Come spend a day in poetry. So that was a clip from a half hour documentary that aired on uh, BBC Radio 4 this spring. Which was just nominated for a pre-Europa. Yay. Um, <laughs> no, that is very exciting. Um, those Europeans, they love Americana, Texas stuff. Um, meet me included. Um, so also this spring I launched um, Passing Stranger, the East Village Poetry Walk. And that's an audio walking tour of poetry-related sites uh, in New York City's East Village. And it contains site-specific poetry, interviews with poets, archival recordings, and music by John Zorn, who's lived in the neighborhood forever. 
and it's narrated by the filmmaker Jim Jarmusch. Uh, you can download the audio file from this website and you can put it on your iPhone or your MP3 player and then go out in the neighborhood and do the walk, which is uh, about two miles long and uh, the, the audio file is, is 95 minutes. Uh, but before I talk, I'm going to talk more about that later. Uh, I'm going to hand it back to Chrissy, who's going to tell us more about her projects. We're switching to, to make it more dynamic so you don't <laughs> fall asleep. <laughs> and first I'm going to cough because I'm getting sick. <coughs> we can all <laughs> have a moment. Um, so um, I am going to tell you about two projects. Uh, the first one is something that I call Block of Time O'Farrell Street. Um, and this is O'Farrell Street. Um, O'Farrell Street goes down, th or goes through a very kind of down and out part of San Francisco called the Tenderloin, which I've always loved the name of that neighborhood. Um, and the main things you pass on the street, of, 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 on O'Farrell Street if you walk by, are things like this, and this, and this. Do you see the, um, what's hidden in that little box? Or in that little, it's a little whiskey bottle. Um, so it's a kind of bleak place. Um, and in this project, Block of Time, I laced one block of O'Farrell Street with stories that I collected that hopefully told a much richer story of that place. Um, so it was sort of similar to Pike's project about the city block in Denmark in some ways, which was kind of cool since we were doing these projects you know, very, in very different times on different continents. Um, but the twist with my project is that it wasn't, it wasn't actually for the radio. It was, um, you could listen to these stories while you stood on the spot that they had happened by dialing them up on a cell phone as you moved down the block. And I'll explain more about the mechanics of how that worked in a second and give it some context. But first, I wanted to play you a clip of one of the stories just to give you a flavor. Um, it's a story about this spot that you're looking at, um, where this person happens to live. My name is Corbett Darius Cross. I live on 951 O'Farrell Street. I am 29 years old, and I work at Starbucks. And when I'm not working at Starbucks, I play music. It occurred to me one day that it would be really great to be able to turn my entire body upside down and like reverse my gravity. Usually when you have an idea like that, it already exists. So I went on the internet and typed in upside down thingy and eventually found out that they're called inversion racks or units or whatever. And then I bought it. And uh, you really have to try, I mean, if you weren't in a hurry or whatever, you, I would try to convince you to go up there. You hang, you hang from your ankles like a bat and it changes your life. So, um, you know, suddenly this place isn't quite as bleak as it seemed. Um, but to back up and explain sort of the context behind this, so I discovered that story that we heard um, indirectly, actually, because I stumbled on a book, this book, um, while I was on a year-long journalism fellowship at Stanford called the Knight Fellowship, which I encourage you guys all to check out. It's a really wonderful um, way to fund journalism projects. Um, and I'd won this fellowship with a proposal that I'd submitted to explore, quote, location-aware storytelling. And I actually wasn't exactly sure what that even meant at first, but I had this vague notion that I was trying to articulate that I wanted to try sort of clicking on the world um, and making audio stories come out. Um, 
and as I said, around that same time as I was on this fellowship, I'd stumbled on this book called 920 O'Farrell Street. And the book is about the same part of O'Farrell Street that is so bleak and down and out now. Um, but it, it, in the late 1800s, it was this very swanky neighborhood and this very swanky part of San Francisco. The author of the book, Harriet Lane Levy, uh, lived on that block with her parents, these two, in a stately house. And the book describes life on that block right and right in her own house at 920 in wonderful detail. Here's, here's a little bit. Picture a house, white like marble, with a gravel walk to a garden with chives and myrtle and lemon verbena. The parlor had red satin spittoons, brocaded with cupids, and the carpet was so deep and silent, I used to sink my ankles into it. I learned many things in this house. I learned to avert my eyes at the glass that kept my mother's false teeth, I learned how to lower my head when my father swung the live chicken over us at Passover in sacrifice. Another just interesting side note is that woman, Harriet Lane Levy, her neighbor and best friend was Alice B. Toklas, who um, you may know either from Brownies or because she also was uh, Gertrude Stein's lover and basically wife. Um, so and secretary. And secretary. <laughs> <laughs> I love when you have those all in one person. Um, so... Um, so uh, so at this book kind of gave me this idea of, you know, it would be wonderful to do, what a great block to do some clickable narrative geology on because you, would, you had all of these layers of stories on this one block. Here I had this wonderful document of how life used to be and I could be a reporter and find stories of how life is now. And um, right at the same time, it turned out that an art center in San Francisco was putting on a festival, a street festival for a day, where they were commissioning site-specific projects about this very neighborhood near the 900 block of O'Farrell Street. And so they chose my project as one to feature in the festival, which meant that I had the things that I needed to actually get me going, which were a built-in audience and a deadline. And so I got to work, and I poured over the memoir, uh, 920 O'Farrell Street. I um, took notes of every mention of an address and the story that went along with it. Um, I made lots of maps. Uh, here's a description of, uh, from the book in the voice of Levy's father about the view out the living room window. Every Sunday for 20 years, the organ grinder lifted the straps from his shoulders folded his legs at the edge of the sidewalk right here and raised his large brown eyes while he turned the crank of his organ. So just these things that kind of brought color and flavor to this otherwise pretty sterile and depressing um, landscape. Um, I also knocked on doors. I poked my head, head into businesses to talk to the business owners to find stories there. Um, and... Uh, all in all, I created about 20 stories, or 20 sort of audio nuggets that were each connected to a different spot along that street. They span time from 1867 to the present. And at every spot where there was a story, because I, I was not very technologically savvy at this point, I tied a red balloon to a big jug of water to mark that place. And then there was a sign next to it uh, next to each balloon that gave you a phone number to call. And all these phone numbers were wonderfully donated to me um, by a company called Mobile Commons that got interested in the project. Um, and so each number that you called took you to a different story um, about what you were looking at. So if you, it was kind of like you were dialing up the ghosts from the street's past and the street's present um, to hear them tell you stories over the phone lines. 
Um, and I wanted to preserve a sense of discovery, kind of what um, Pike was talking about, sort of no beginning or middle or end, no dictated route. So you could just kind of hop from one balloon to another at random. There wasn't a, a, a sort of a preordained order. It was more like a treasure hunt, and you could skip ahead if you didn't, if you wanted to go in a zigzag. Um, I'm going to play you one story that you could listen to in front of this Thai restaurant. I'm the owner of this Thai restaurant here. I'm proud to build it uh, from the ground up. Before I opened the business, I drove the cab for 15 years in San Francisco here. One night I pick up the guy, like I think down nearby Tenderline, and he want to go Golden Gate Bridge, close to 11 o'clock at night. I say, okay, so I drove on Franklin Street. He say, you wouldn't ask me why I go Golden Gate Bridge at this late? I said, no. I guess if you want to tell me, I guess I will listen to it, right? And he said, I'm going to go and jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. I said, okay. <laughs> you, you're not going to stop me? I said, why should I? You know? And so I get out to the Golden Gate Bridge. I think the fare was like $7 or something that time. And he looked his wallet. He found a $10, right? So he gave it to me another $10. So I turned around and told him, I said, I don't think you need any change. <laughs> he, said, I, he said, well, I guess you're right. I don't need any change. I said, OK. So I let him off at the, on the side of the bridge. So once he get off, I turned around the cab. I called my dispatcher. I told him, why don't you call the car patrol over there? And he did. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I was too, too cool to him. I don't know what happened if he's really going to jump, but I don't think so. So that one really kind of threw me a curveball when I walked into this Thai restaurant and I ended up with that story. Um, but, uh, you know, so some, some of the stories tackled big existential things like... Uh, suicide and whether you should stop somebody um, and and things like immigration and you know the many people who lived on the street and worked on it had come from other countries and the American dream um, others were just little anecdotes sort of funny neighborhood gossip um, some of my favorite stories were about the same spot at different points in history, kind of getting back to that layering idea. Um, and so one example, uh, Levy, the woman who wrote that memoir, describes coming back from a trip uh, to Europe uh, in 1906 to discover that her house had totally disappeared because while she was gone, uh, San Francisco's great earthquake of 1906 had struck. Um, Nothing was in its right place. Nothing was where it used to be. Our street, substantial, solid as a cube, guaranteed to wear for generations, had disappeared. Not one building remained to confirm my memory. And when I was an old woman, in 1937, the place changed once again. One automobile company after another bought ground along the length of the avenue and erected their showrooms upon it. I watched motor cars drive into the repair department of the Cadillac Motor Company over the parlor of my 920 O'Farrell Street. And then, coincidentally, when I was interviewing other people along this street, two, two of them also referred back to this same Cadillac dealership that Levy talked about, but in a totally different context. This building across the street, of course, was Donnelly Cadillac, the first car dealership picketed for not offering equal opportunities for people. 
was an early civil rights thing, and they actually marched for days. My grandmother, I'm sure, was there. She was uh, involved with the civil rights movement in the 60s. Later in life, like in the 80s, my father actually bought a Cadillac from that actual dealership. I'd like to think there was some significance in him buying it there. You know, black people felt if they bought Cadillacs, that's where they do it at. So it, that just kind of blew my mind that in this one spot, there were all of these stories from an earthquake to, uh, you know, the San Francisco's first civil rights picket. And yet now there is no evidence of that whatsoever. It's a movie theater. People walk by the street and would never know all of the stories that were buried there. So that, this, this red balloon experiment was an attempt to try to unearth some of that. And it was, it was fun to do. I learned lots and lots. For one, I learned just how many narratives team inside a random city block. Um, and that's what I kind of loved about this project is that most audio tours in cities are for places that kind of already have some known significance. It's either a historic district or um, a famous person lived there. And, and what I was interested in doing was kind of illuminating the everyday, the things that were in, seemed insignificant. Um, I also learned sort of as a radio reporter, I'm used to crafting stories about things that are unseen and far away from the people who hear them. And with this location-based radio, I knew that my listeners would actually be looking at that exact spot where, where the story took place, or at least part of it. And there's something kind of transformative about what happens when people hear a story about a place that they have a physical connection to. Your ears perk up in kind of a different way because it, it has relevance to you in that moment. Um, and I, I got an email from one of the visitors who had, had done this project or who, who'd experienced it. Um, and he she wrote to say, I walked around the rest of the day with bigger ears and eyes looking for more stories. And that's what I kind of loved. It's like you were just, your antenna were up then for for what might lie beneath anything. Um, and it was wonderful to see also how the stories sparked conversations among the people who were, <coughs> excuse me, going on the tour. People would talk to each other, say, oh, did you know this thing about this building? Or I used to live in that building. It kind of turned into this cool block party. Um, I also discovered that the best stories were ones that connected to the physical place in a very specific way and gave you really visual cues. Um, here's just a, a quick sampling of that. Um, I live at the building that you're looking at. The stories that I've heard, the building originally uh, was built around 1910 for transient actors. So just I just wanted to give you that snippet. What I what was in, what I liked about that moment is that he's saying I lived in the building that you're looking at. That that's this one, and that wasn't something that happened right away. As as a as a reporter, usually I'm interviewing somebody and they're just talking about where they are. So they'd say something like, oh, well, my house. And so I had to kind of learn to prompt people to talk as if they were talking to somebody who was looking at that place. So it's just sort of those little tweaks in how you ask a question that allow them to become more like a guide, especially because I didn't, I consciously didn't want sort of an authoritative narrator walking you around. I wanted the stories to be coming from the people who lived who live there themselves, um, but then you have to kind of help them be a guide. Um, I also ran into some privacy questions and privacy issues. If you're broadcasting a slice of somebody's personal life right in front of where they live, that raises different issues than you know doing it over the radio. Um, so that's something that you want to think through. Um, I also struggled in terms of the best way to sort of preserve the experience because obviously the balloons weren't going to last. They were going to pop and the phone numbers that had been donated to me only um, I only had for about a month. Um, 
Um, but I wanted the stories to live on in some way. And so I put them online in a kind of quick and dirty Google map. <coughs> Excuse me. But without being in the environment, the stories kind of were missing something. You know, there's a different bar that you have for a, a radio story than one that's here because you you have a different vested interest. Um, so um, I wasn't I wasn't so happy with the way that that this was preserved online. I actually think that a uh, Pike has come up with some really lovely ways of transferring the experience to an online experience, and he'll be telling you about those in a moment. Um, but oh, and a final lesson that I that I discovered is if you tie red balloons to water jugs, people might think that they are just free gifts lying on the street and walk away with them. So I kept having to sort of chase after people, like, no, that's not. <laughs> it was a hot day, and they would just grab the water. Um, but uh, but that was okay. Some some people needed water. Um, so after I did that project, I was pretty excited, and um, and I decided that I wanted to keep doing these sorts of, of projects in my spare time, and so I. I collect them all under the umbrella of what I call stories everywhere, um, sort of like Connor or Oberst, you know, calls himself Bright Eyes. Uh, this is like my this is my alter ego project, um, and so uh, it's a location-based storytelling project, and it's also the name of my website, story, storieseverywhere.org. Um, and the next piece that I did was a collaboration with StoryCorps um, called StoryCorps Here and There. Does ev is everybody familiar with StoryCorps? Okay, so I want to explain what it is. <laughs> that last in the last uh, in the last um, version of this, I we were explaining sort of what. But so basically, you know, you you the, at this point there are forty thousand conversations, forty thousand interviews that StoryCorps has collected over the last ten years, um, and you know. Some of them air on NPR each week, but most of them don't. They're kind of locked up in these archives, um, and many of them. Uh, are still wonderful stories, and so I created an iPhone audio walk of Lower Manhattan using some of these raw archives um, from the raw, raw interviews from the StoryCorps archives. I mined dozens of the interviews for little nuggets about places in Lower Manhattan and the Lower East Side, and edited them down to have a shape. Um, and then I geotagged them. I used a wonderful program that a radio producer named Jenny Asarno, who maybe some of you know, and her partner Eitan created, um, where you could actually just take an MP3 file and sort of drop it onto a map so that it would automatically geotag it. And then they also have an iPhone app called Getting Closer that triggers then when you're out in the world, if you have this app running, it triggers a story to play when you get to the spot that it's connected to using uh, GPS and satellites. Um, so here's an example, or, or here's an excerpt from the walk. This is sort of the introductory bit that you hear when you start it, and it helps explain how it works. Oh, and there's a quick question, yeah? Um, it's getting closer, and then, um, and I can tell you a little bit more about it if you if you come up afterwards too. Unfortunately, it's kind of dormant right now, which is an issue that we can talk about funding. <laughs> but uh, so here's a here's a quick excerpt. Hello, you found me. Welcome to StoryCorps here and there. Look around you, up and down Bowery Street, right where you're standing. As you stand in this spot right now, you are surrounded by stories, left behind like contrails by the people who have lived and loved and worked on this very piece of earth over the years. There's profound stories, there's silly stories, there's little snippets of day-to-day -day life and moments that changed a life forever. 
This city is covered with stories, and if you keep your earbuds in and stop at some of the spots on the map you're holding, you'll hear a sampling of them. Here's how it works. When you pass near a spot that has a story, you'll hear the voices of the city whispering to you. The closer you get to the spot from which the story is emanating, the louder the whispering will get. And then one voice will emerge. We didn't know anybody that had a lawnmower because there wasn't any grass where we lived. A voice that was once heard at the very spot you're standing. So um, the walk launched uh, during a festival that the New Museum in New York City was putting on on the Lower East Side. It was called the Festival of Ideas, and I persuaded my employer at the time, KQED, to help to, to, to give me time to work on this, which was really je uh, generous of them. Um, and uh, we basically had this stand on the Bowery during the festival where we passed out maps like this. Um, and they had maps of where the stories were, instructions on how to access them. Uh, and so say, you know, then we just sort of let people go and, and go, on their, go on their ramblings. Um, and so say you were walking past uh, the pedestrian entrance of the Brooklyn Bridge, you would hear this. Listen, there's a story near you. I came to you and said, I wanted to cross the Brooklyn Bridge with you. And I immediately knew what that meant, because earlier... When yeah. we were right around the corner from right here, on one of our adventure days, I just was telling a little silly story about, you know, crazy poetic ideas when, what was I, just out of college and had come into the city for the day, walked halfway across the bridge, turned around, decided I'm not going to cross that bridge until I'm with the love of my life. And I just thought that was such a silly <laughs> idea or whatever, but I saw you like that. It still melts me every <laughs> time I hear that. <laughs> so then on the engagement day, I didn't say, will you marry me? No. I just said I wanted to go to the bridge. And we well, we took the train into the city, and yeah. we got out of the subway and looked over at the bridge, and it happened to be a cancer awareness day, and everybody was wearing pink on the bridge, and everybody was headed this way, the entire <laughs> walkway. But the, the sea parted, and we walked halfway onto the bridge. And then you looked at me in my eyes, and you said, uh, we've done everything together. I want us to do this together. So... <laughs> Some could say that story was too much, <laughs> but um, but I think it's pretty sweet. Um, but so I, 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 all in all, I mined um, and crafted 27 stories um, that I sprinkled over Lower Manhattan. Um, and there were stories like that, very, very sweet ones. There were also stories that were very dark. There was a woman who um, whose mother had uh, witnessed the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. And so, you know, it was kind of this varying emotions as you moved through the landscape. Um, and to actually get all of these stories took a lot of work. It's kind of the blessing and the curse of having a big archive to go through. Um, so the StoryCorps gave me a hard drive with about 70 raw interviews on it that, um, that they'd sort of narrowed down to, they had a hunch that some of them might have some mention of a neighborhood that I was interested in. Um, but that was like 50 hours worth of audio. Um, and so they also gave me this spreadsheet that you're looking at that gave some basic info about each interview. And then I had handwritten logs <laughs> that I read through 
through um, and then started to narrow down where there might be some kind of story or revealing moment that was attached to a place. Um, and then I just started listening. But these are like 40 minute long interviews, most of them. And so then you would find a, a passing moment and have to figure out, okay, is that enough to actually become a story or not? And then I whittled them down and edited them and 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 turned the ones that I thought were gonna hold up um, and uh, turn them into these little nuggets um, and so I crafted these stories plotted them on a map and then you sort of had these questions of density you know you wanted the neighborhood you wanted the experience to you didn't want to have to walk blocks and blocks to get to the next story so you'd kind of reorient things to to work that way you'd also think about way, ways of creating sort of a, de a, a texture a different emotional texture across the the map so you wanted representative stuff that was going on you wanted happy stuff and sad stuff it was also sort of random because these were just personal stories so there was kind of a tension there um, it's not necessarily a comprehensive history of the place um, but it's more kind of a personal anecdotal history of the place um, so after a few months of work I was rewarded by watching crowds of people rambling around lower Manhattan listening to the stories and it was a really wonderful day um, and I got a, a really fun piece of feedback a few days later. A guy who um, had done the, done the walk wrote me to, to say that he'd listened to this story while he was walking. I'll just play a bit of it now. Why don't you play with your friends on the streets? One of our favorites was stickball. You had a broomstick and a ball called a Spaldine. And the only place you can buy those balls is in New York City. One of the most important questions for anybody that played stickball in New York City was, how many sewers could you hit a ball? Because that's how they gauge how good you were. It's how far you could hit it by the number of sewers that you hit. And so, strangely enough, by serendipity, in the course of this guy walking through the streets and listening, he actually stumbled onto a huge stickball game. And he took the picture, the, the picture at the top there, um, of a scoreboard that had been chalked onto the pavement that read old school versus new school. Um, and I thought that was sort of, that was my ideal moment of sort of the, the serendipity of this project, of the way that the sort of the past and the present mingle together and connect you, sort of take, use a phone that often sort of isolates you and divides you from the world and instead takes you back into it and, and makes you more aware of it. Um, so I will leave it there um, for now and pass it on to Pike uh, for him to tell you a little bit about his projects. Uh, so I'm just gonna show, uh you a video of the website uh, functionality. This is a uh, website. Um, so the front page of the site is a map of the East Village, uh, this hand-drawn map, and you have those blue dots uh, representing the different stops, and you can scroll over them, and, and you'll get the name of the poet or the name of the place. Um, and we can just listen to the introduction for two minutes. Sorry. Hi, I'm Jim Jarmish. I'm a big fan of poetry and a longtime resident of the Lower East Side. I studied poetry with Kenneth Koch at Columbia College, more about Kenneth later, and I've also had the great fortune of crossing paths with many of the amazing poets we'll be talking about today. For more than 60 years, there's been an intense poetry scene happening here in the East Village. Let us go then, you and I. When the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table, 
Through the 1940s and 50s, American poetry was dominated by the high modernism of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. But in the late 50s and 60s, poetry changed dramatically, moving toward language that was looser, less formal, more open to politics and city life, sex and popular culture, more communal. Many of those changes first took root here, in New York City's East Village. These were the stomping grounds of Allen Ginsberg and the Beats. Maybe the East Village was the only mirror that Allen ever needed. Of Frank O'Hara and other New York school poets. I think most of those poets have achieved uh, something very important. They've proved that uh, humor and the comic impulse has its place in serious poetry. That wasn't taken for granted. Of important Puerto Rican poets and the rise of the poetry slam scene. The purpose of slam being to fill your hungry ears with nutritious sound meaning constructs, space shots into consciousness known hereafter as Paul. We begin our poetry tour at St. Mark's on the Bowery, a cultural institution that has been central to the East Village poetry scene. Bring down the volume. Um, so that's the website, uh, and out there on the left side you have these two tabs. You have a map uh, tab that uh, gives you the actual street view, uh, Google street view of the place you're in, and you have that photo um, tab which uh, sh gives you more archival photos um, of the place or the poets. Um, and then when you listen to the end of a stop, it automatically takes you to the next, so you can listen through the whole thing just by clicking on the introduction. Um, Okay, I just want to give you a little background to the project, uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the process of making it and uh, the lessons I learned and, and some of the mistakes I made. Um, Curtis Fox, who's a great radio producer and, and a mentor to me, he was working with the Poetry Foundation and um, here in Chicago, and he came to me and, and said they wanted new ways of telling stories about poetry. Um, and I've been reading this book that a friend of mine had written about the East Village poetry scene in the 60s. So similar to Chrissy's project uh, about O'Farrell Street, it all kind of started with a book. Um, and I'd also translated some of these poets uh, into Danish. Um, and one day I was walking around uh, the East Village with uh, Ron Paget, who's a poet uh, that's been living in the neighborhood for more than 40 years. Um, and he was telling stories about this and the other poet, and uh, and and this idea of the walking tour uh, came to me. Um, so I just want to take you through the process of making the thing. Um, Curtis and I pitched the idea to the Poetry Foundation, and they liked it, and they gave us some funding to develop the project. Uh, I began interviewing poets in the neighborhood and walking around, talking to people about what happened, where and when, and um, searching through books for site-specific poems and uh, listening through a lot of archival recordings. Um, and then we started planning out a route uh, according to where the richest material was. And, um, and once we had that route, uh, I went back out again and did more interviews with poets and uh, on those specific stops and, uh, and then started editing and, and writing script. Uh, and then uh, I did a lot of test walks with the script in my hand, reading it out loud as I walked in the street like a madman. And um, 
because <coughs> the, the walking tour uh, is one continuous file, uh, audio file, and it gives you directions. So it tells you where to start and stop and where to go left and right. Um, and everything is timed out. So in a way, geography became my editor. Like I knew there was 30 seconds to walk down that block. And so um, I had 30 seconds to tell that story. Or um, uh, Then I recorded Curtis uh, doing a couple of the stops uh, as a kind of a dummy narrator. And, um, and then I sent that out to some people that I thought could be good narrators. Uh, I wanted to find a narrator who could bring it to a wider audience than just a little poetry world. Um, and I'd heard anecdotes about Jim Jarmusch studying with Kenneth Koch at Columbia in the 70s. And um, I knew that he knew a lot of the poets and that he had lived and worked on the Lower East Side for a long time. Um, so I called his office and I sent a CD with some of these early pieces that Curtis had narrated. Um, and I waited for about three months, I think, and then I, I got a response and, and he had listened and really liked it and he agreed to narrate. Uh, and he was great. He came into the studio and, and spent four hours with us and, and uh, he was a total perfectionist. He, he did like seven, eight, nine takes of one line. Um, and, uh, and then after that, there was more editing, of course, and polishing and then back out in the neighborhood testing it out. And, um, and then the project went to sleep for quite a while uh, while we were trying to find someone to build a website. Um, and then uh, we found Ziga, uh, which is named after the Russian documentary maker Ziga Vertov. And uh, it's a media lab that was founded by journalist Kara Oler in 2010 and uh, the media artist uh, Jesse Shapins and creative technologist James Burns. I'm sure you probably all know who they are. Um, and it took us about a year to build the site. I think we could probably have done it faster, but, but these things take so much more time than you, you think they do. Um, and the main, the point of this site is to give people who are in Australia or New Zealand, wherever, uh, a chance to, to get a similar experience to what it's like uh, walking through the neighborhood. So, so um, the site has all these, I'm gonna show you that in a minute, it has all these background videos that are just like simple uh, videos shot on a tripod and, and people and cars kind of go in and out of the image, sort of like at random, um, sort of like the experience you would have just standing there. Um, some lessons learned, uh, location, 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 as the realtors say. Um, you have to anchor the listener in the place, um, like Chrissy was talking about also. You have to make them feel that they're in the right place and that uh, what they're hearing is really relating to what they're looking at. I find that when the walking tour doesn't work as well as when it, it gets too abstract and not relating to place. Um, so I'm just gonna show you two uh, examples of something I think worked and something I think didn't work. Uh, the first one is the one I think works. Uh, that's the Ellen Ginsberg stuff. Some people call Walt Whitman the grandfather of American poetry. His most direct literary descendant was probably Allen Ginsberg, who adopted Whitman's long free verse line and shared his love for New York City. Ginsberg lived in a number of buildings in the East Village, but the apartment he lived in the longest is 437 East 12th Street. The East Village really was Allen's 
permanent home. That's poet Bob Rosenthal, Ginsburg's friend and his secretary for the last 20 years of his life. The first time you come to visit Alan, you would have to... So you're sitting there um, on the steps of a church right across from the building, and you're looking up at Ellen Ginsburg's old apartment, and, and Bob Rosenthal is telling you how um, every time you, a poet came to visit Ellen Ginsburg, he would always throw down the spare key in a used, unmatched sock. Um, so you have this really visceral sense of, of that experience, and, and you get an insight that you wouldn't be able to see with your own eye or even read in a book. Um, another example of something I think was less successful is uh, this stop. Um, and can you bring the sound down? Just I'm just going to talk over that. Uh, so this stop is about the Dial a Poem Project, um, which was a creation of this man here, John Giorno, uh, who also happens to be the man who sleeps for six hours in Andy Warhol's film Sleep. Um, there was a lot of overlap between the Warhol crowd and these poets. Um, it was very important for me to talk about this project because it was very significant. He recorded a lot of poets and, and then he hooked up these 10 tape machines to 10 telephone lines. Um, this is long, long before answering machines and all that stuff. Um, and you, you, there was this phone number you could call and you could uh, hear a poem, sort of like Chrissy's thing too. Um, and a lot of the archival recordings that I'm using in the project, they come from, from his project. Uh, but there is no place really to anchor it in the neighborhood. So you're just walking down the street while you're listening to these poems that were recorded a long time ago. And, and uh, you hear about John Giorno's struggles with lawyers because um, they shot the project down eventually because uh, there were a lot of profanities in the poems and school kids were calling these numbers. So. <laughs> Um, but it all gets a bit, little abstract and it's not very site specific, so it's it's hard for the listeners to to focus on the audio. Um, <coughs> then uh, just a few words about how I think these kind of projects uh, are different from making traditional radio documentary work. Um, of course, you have all the visuals; you're right there, and so making this kind of work, I think you can almost think of it as. Um, as uh, the soundtrack for a movie shot on location. Um, and so you don't need as much description, obviously. You can get behind the concrete much quicker. Um, and what I think is even more cool is that I can't really predict what kind of experience the listener is having. Um, so you know, it could be winter and snowing, or it could be a sunny spring day, and you could meet this old woman who asks you what you're listening to and you have a conversation and she turns out to be a poet herself and that happened to me. Um, so everybody is having their own experience um, and I have no control. Uh, although I did of course plan out a route and and it is a highly curated walk. Um, so there is I guess a bit of a paradox there but um, and another lesson I learned is uh, that you don't actually need all these ambient sounds. I had, I walked around the neighborhood a lot in the beginning with this very good stereo mic and recorded all these fancy sounds. But uh, the more I tested it out, uh, the more I cut them out of the piece because um, it was too much somehow. They, they're already there, the sounds. Um, so the ones that stayed in there are just like pointers. So you're, you're walking through Tompkins Square Park and there's this 
area on the right where there are always these skaters. And, and so I just put the sound of a skateboard going by in your right ear. Um, so just to tell you that you're in the right place. Um, but beyond that, I think there aren't actually so many differences between traditional documentary work and this kind of work. And that's what I think is so exciting about these kind of projects that we can apply our skills to, to all these new possibilities. Um, and just a few thoughts about why to, to, to do these kind of things. I think I did it for very uh, selfish reasons. I think none of us are in this line of work for the money. Um, so I always felt that it was important for me to tell stories uh, that I really cared about. And, and for me, poetry always came first. Um, and I know a lot of young radio producers uh, who want to make a, a career in radio. They go out and, and do reporting on whatever they think certain radio shows might want. Um, and my advice is to not do that, to just tell the stories that you really, really care about. Um, and if you're into photography or if you're into architecture, you can um, you can uh, uh, you know you can try to persuade organizations that are into that same thing that you're into to to fund this kind of work. Um, <coughs> so it's a great opportunity for us to to connect with a, a community and uh, to explore the soul of a place. Um, because I do think that places have a soul or a spirit, at least, um, which consists of this stuff that Chrissy was talking about also before, uh, all these different layers of meaning that are invisible to the eye, uh, socioeconomic structures and archaeology uh, and stories from people who live there. And, and then there's often literature, uh, these accounts from, from people who were there before. Um, and for me, the spirit of New York is embodied in the writings of this guy, Walt Whitman, who loved to roam the streets and he loved the anonymity that the city gave him. And uh, at the same time, he loved the feeling of being one with the crowd, literally. Uh, and the title of the project comes from a Whitman poem, uh, To a Stranger. Uh, and I'll just play that here at the end and we can take some questions. And then after that, we have some more slides, um, just kind of uh, with some URLs for other places to look for this kind of work. But I'll end with this Whitman poem. Passing stranger, you do not know how longingly I look upon you. You must, you must be, be he I was, seeking. I was seeking, or she I was seeking. It comes to me as of a dream. It comes to me as of a dream. I have somewhere surely lived a life of joy with you. All is recalled as we flit by each other, fluid, affectionate, affectionate chaste, matured. matured. You grew up with me. Were a boy with me or a girl with me. I ate with you and slept with you. Your body has become not yours only, nor left my body mine only. You, you give me the me pleasures the pleasure of your eyes, eyes face, face, flesh, flesh as, we pass. as we pass. You take of my beard, breast, of my hands, beard breast, hands in return. in return. I am not to speak to you, I am to think of you. I sit alone or wake at night alone. I am, I am to, to wait. wait. I do not doubt I am to meet I you do again. I not doubt I am to meet and you to again. I am to see to it that I do not lose you. Thank you so much.
I love that poem. Always gives me chills whenever <laughs> we hear it. It's so good. Um, so yeah, any questions that you guys have? Or? Yes. Um, I'm just curious. So how did you? Was your project funded? Uh, it was, yeah. I guess partially funded, you could say. Um, um, and I only got money from the Poetry Foundation. I could have probably gotten money elsewhere, uh, but I didn't spend any time doing that. Uh, I should have, but uh, I guess if I calculate my hours, um, that's why I say it's, it's only partially funded. Uh, but I actually worked on this thing for six years. Um, so, yeah, on and off, of course. Were you doing something else during that time? I'm just interested in the funding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a day job. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I worked for Studio 360 uh, for four years. Chrissy, uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, do you have a sense of how long the stories should be? Yeah, I've experimented with that a little bit, and I think it's still, I, I think it obviously depends on the story, but it's funny, my first instinct was people are people are walking, they're busy, they're, they're not going to have the same attention span, so everything should be shorter. So I started with like 20 and 30 second things, but then because there's so much other stuff going on when you're standing out in a street, sometimes it felt like that was almost too quick, you know, by the time you sort of... That's why I put that um, sort of lead-in of the whisper track at the beginning to give people a chance to sort of, okay, focus, stop looking at everything around them and just sort of help them hone in. Um, and, and then I would ask people for feedback and, and they actually had, they had a tolerance for longer stories than I was expecting. Like even a minute and a half to two minutes seemed okay. But I think that's a sort of, it's the art, not the science of it, of experimenting with how long the story um, how long an attention span lasts for a given story. Yeah, I think a minute and a half and two minutes is, is often the, the, the length yeah. of my stops also. And there are some longer ones, like the Allen Ginsberg one, which is five and a half, I think, but then you sit down on these church steps. So. Yeah, and I think a little bit of variation to, you know, always keeping right. the pacing so it doesn't, you don't get into some rhythm where you're expecting it to end at a certain point. There's one in the back. Uh, Chrissy, when you were doing your San Francisco project, did you go into each business first and like ex explain your project and then like figure out if they were interesting and then decide which addresses you were going to profile and take it from there? I mean, when you, I'm just wondering what it was like when you first walked into uh, a business and <laughs> how do you? How do you like explain you're not, you're yourself? Not really, with uh, organization, you're on your own, but I want to record you anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, and I did sort of. I, I I could trot out the I'm I'm a radio reporter, you know, and I'm I'm on a fellowship, so I, I sort of used what credentials I could to help um, to help make them feel like they weren't just talking to a random stranger. But I think just saying that um, that you're working on a project like this is enough. And it's, you know, it's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a reporter and probably most of you guys are too. So you sort of just go in and that's part of what you do is you ingratiate yourself <laughs> and <laughs> get them to want to talk to you. Um, but I, uh, yeah, and then some, there, there was, there was always the question of how high a bar do you want? Like in some ways, I think some of the stories that worked on location wouldn't work as radio stories. They wouldn't be interesting enough. Um, but they, 
are interesting when you're standing there and you can't, you know, it could just, just be a little anecdote. Some of them I think work actually as, they do work kind of on their on their own as well, um, but that you sort of have to think to your, that that's a bit of a an experiment as well. I think. Molly, um, it seems like there's sort of two approaches. One is something that somebody could stumble upon, like the, the balloons, versus with the poetry walk, you have to stand it down on this either do this walk. Are there? I mean, if you want to try to hit both of those and say, hey, you can purposely go do this, here's a map, you're finding it online. Or you could also stumble on it. I mean, is there some kind of technology that you're finding that could hit that middle? Uh, I think it's, you, you, you can have both approaches, or try both. Uh, with the Poetry Walk also, um, we had, uh, it opened, uh, uh, in connection with the Armory Arts Week, so we had like a little show in a gallery in the East Village and and some information there. So that was kind of an information hub, and and people would just stumble on it. Uh, um, yeah. Um, I th and I do think, yeah, street festivals. Both of mine, I t I tied to street festivals, and I think that that can be really helpful because you already have sort of a captive audience and people who are in the mindset of I'm going to spend a day out on the street doing interesting things. It's harder maybe to capture the attention of a commuter. I think tourists obviously are a good audience for this stuff too. Um, but there is some interesting technology now. Um, you know, there's QR codes, um, which have problems because not uh, most people don't have a QR reader on their phone and it is kind of clunky, but it at least gets to the sort of, oh, you could just be walking by something and it and you wouldn't be expecting it, and then you would see it. There's also now RFID chips that you can put in things. That's sort of, we're just on the cusp of that technology right now. It's definitely not ubiquitous, but I think it will be, I mean, this stuff happens so fast that I think it will become more ubiquitous. And so then you could, you can imagine creating things that there would be sort of a push to you. So if you have it on, um, you, or if there's a sign and you see a plaque or something, that then you could be alerted to, oh, hey, there's a story here. Uh, in in way in the back. Thanks. Um, it seems like um, one of the issues, one of the major issues with these sort of interactive sound installation sort of location-based projects is that you know there's a lot up against you in getting a user to actually engage. You know, to actually go through to like call <coughs> first of all. And then there's all the elements, like in the actual physical world, like it's crazy, noisy, like things could be, it could be like unsafe to be on your phone in a particular neighborhood, you know? But that doesn't stop anybody from being on their phone in general. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right. Um, but, but yeah, and also the quality of the sound is not that great with the technology. Um, and so like these beautifully produced pieces that we're listening to, it sounds very different on the phone. Um, so I'm just wondering, like... I, I don't think that's the case, necessarily. I mean, you can have a, an MP3 on your phone. Um, right. I guess if you're calling, right. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. it depends. I guess if you're... Well, yeah, I guess uh, it depends if you're using, like, a smartphone right, right. versus, like, just calling a straight right. number. But, yeah, so I'm wondering, uh, like, what... In going, in, in like conceptualizing the project and also like trying to produce for um, with all these challenges against you, you know, sort of up against people actually doing the thing. 
um, like what are some of the um, what are what have, what have been like some of the motivations you've heard from people who have used? I think it's important to tap into a community that's already there. And so with the poetry walk, it's there's a poetry community already there, of course. Um, um, yeah, and I do, I mean, I go back to the attaching, partnering with some, I mean, that's why the street festivals were so great, because there were people, again, who, that's a good way to get the word out at the beginning, at least, because there's other promotional activities going on that you can sort of hold on to the coattails of. Um, and 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 as for the, I definitely thought about that with when I was doing in terms of the sort of just the craft and the sound quality issue when I was doing the um, the the call the dial a story thing. For one, I'd wanted that to be cell phone as opposed to smartphone or dumb phone as opposed to smartphone because that made it more accessible in a lot of ways, and especially in a neighborhood like this where most people walking by did not have smartphones. Um, a lot of them didn't even have cell phones, frankly. Um, but so I had a lot more music and mixing at first, and then you would listen to it over the cell phone. It was like, oh my God, you can't hear, like you can't hear any of this. So it does just have to be. Sometimes you you hope that this. I stripped a lot of that out and hoped that the stories carried um, themselves. Yeah, um, I'm really excited about all of this. It was a great presentation. So I have two questions. Um, one is kind of like technical. Like, do you feel? Do you have a strong feeling on whether on the advantages of having one long uh, one-hour track versus having individual tracks um, that maybe you would access through an app? Um, right. Is that something worth investing in? Um, and also, I, I recently did the Janet Cardiff Central Park walk. Um, which, if anyone is interested, uh, there is a way to download those MP3s. Um, and something I found really interesting was the way she like described the environment, which is like she did this in 2005. So some things line up and some things don't. I'm learning how much you guys played around with describing actually the environment that you were having people walk through, because obviously not everything will correspond. That's an interesting question. Um, so I worked on this project for a long time, and, and when I started out working on it, uh, that, that GPS technology, I was not really familiar with that. I think if I had done it today, I would probably have done it that way. Um, there is this uh, great project in uh, London. Is Fran still here? Yeah, you are. Uh, Francesca Panetta made this uh, audio walk of... Uh, uh, Hackney, a neighborhood in northeast London, uh, and that that works with this kind of geotagging. You're walking into these circles, and and you hear the audio, like Chrissy's um, StoryCorps project. Uh, I would probably have done that. I think uh, the reason I made one continuous file is that I wanted the 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 listener to not have to deal with with. Uh, you know, pressing play at every stop, or you know, like in a traditional uh, like museum uh, audio guide. Um, so it it is kind of traditional and, and old fashioned in a way. Um, but um, the um, the other thing I think is also um, I, I had experimented with another technology called Layer. Are you are any of you familiar with this? It's like an augmented reality smartphone app, and it has an interface where you you know you look at you can see yourself on the map you can on on your screen and so you can kind of see oh the next story is down there and 
I almost used that. And then when I was experimenting with the different ones and wandering around, I found myself getting so sucked into like, where am I on the map? And I can't, and it was, it ended up detracting from the actual experience. Um, and it made it more, more about the map than it did about the audio. So the thing that I really liked about the Getting Closer app is it was so minimal that it was just, you know, it was really about just walking. There was, there was just a, a, a very simple interface. The problem, though, is that then how do they actually find them or how to, you know, I was handing out maps because it was a festival, but how otherwise, how would you do it? So there is that tension. I think it's, you know, a lot of the questions that you guys are asking are wonderful questions, and they're all ones that we're sort of trying to sort out right now because it is kind of uncharted territory. So there's definitely not right answers. There's just different sort of approaches and experiments. And the way back? I just had a real real quick thing. Is actually the, we talked about it a little bit, but as Yoe had discussed, um, I've done some work in Philadelphia and continuing on doing some with a public art project and got in some of those quality issues as you talked about that typical public radio impulse to do rich stories just yeah it doesn't work at all on the phone so the way we ended up solving is doing the multiple mixes doing a really crappy minimal mix for the phone and squeezing the hell out of it and then doing a lovely beautiful mix for the smartphone app and the website so it's more work but in the end it was worth it because yeah they were just completely unlistenable on the phone to have a really lovely public radio show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I actually did a similar thing, because for the StoryCorps one, I, you could also listen to it on a phone, or you could listen to it on your iPhone, and I did the same thing in the end, which was a lot of annoying work, but it felt like, yeah, that's you want to make it as good, as, as high quality as you can if you have the medium to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Friend? I just want to give a plug to the company that I've been making some of these with, which is called um, App Furnace. Um, Anyone can go in and create their own version of these apps up to two gigs and you can it's got a kind of really easy system for you to to upload your MP3s and draw the zones. So like if anyone's interested in just playing around with the idea of this, well the company's called Calvium. They're in they're in Britain, but you, you know you can you can draw your maps anywhere. So it, the, the website's appfurnace.com. And anyone can just set up a. Um, so you said App Furnace? App Furnace. Okay, AppFurnace.com. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the cool thing about, you know, there's. So so many wonderful projects like this going on, and it's and we we don't even all know know about each other. So it's neat to to hear all the different tools and different um, d different things. I think it's a good time for us all to be sharing about our trials and errors. Yeah. So for Chrissy, I, those stories like about the cab driver and the conversion guy are amazing and they really do let you peer behind the door in a way that you never would be able to. Um, they're not specifically about the place and so my, my question is like what kinds of questions were you asking? Yeah, and I wondered about, you know, that's another sort of trial and error. Was it too kind of what Pike was saying with the, um, you know, with, with the dial-a poem? Was it... Was it too not about the place, or did it not matter because it was a good story and it was there was at least an anchor to the place? Um, so I basically would just, you know, at first I'd talk to them about because I didn't think it would be that interesting just to hear about the architecture of the place. But it's like you have this character that sort of was my organizing principle, or the the lives and the stories that are contained in these places. So I would just. I was, I was really just sort of doing it as if they were profiles. And first I would have, I would start with how did you get here and, and, and some of the stuff that was more connected to 
to that spot geographically, but then that would always unfold into just other sorts of stories. And this guy, I mean, the upside down guy, I went into his apartment. That was one where I just, I was also just like ringing call boxes and be like, hi, I'm downstairs, I'm doing this thing, can I come up? I would run into people on the street and he was, he brought me up and made me tea and then there was this thing in his apartment. I was like, what the hell is that thing? And he said, let me show you. <laughs> so. But it does, it's just like, wow, there are like, so many interesting things, inch by inch, in this world, you know. So, any other questions? Yes. Um, I'm fascinated at this idea of highly curated work that you ultimately have no control over, mm -hmm. how it's experienced. And I'm wondering if you almost have a laundry list, and what are the things that you know that you absolutely controlled, and what are the things that you really let go? Well, of course, I mean, the the poets that are in this project, I selected them. And there's a lot of poets that are not in the project. So that's me. That's my taste in a way. Um, but I also try to, 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 to make it representative of the neighborhood somewhat. Uh, so it's it's a mixture. Um, um, sorry. What was your question again? Well, my background is I'm very interested in a digital environment of yeah. trusting the reader once you curate something yeah. and how you sort of get the, trust the reader to get what you want them to get out of a story knowing they're not going to pursue the path that you've laid out. Right. I mean, in some ways that's true of any radio too, right? You know, we don't know when they're going to leave, if they're going to have to get their laundry in the middle of it. and. So I think that there's some that you just hope that you're telling a compelling enough story that that they'll stay with you and they'll have their driveway moment or their standing in the middle of the street moment. Um, but I think for me it was sort of all about the setup. Like how do you how do you at least get the the environment? You, how do you help guide them into the environment in such a way that then they can have the the best experience or the most ideal experience that you were trying to create for them? And then you just sort of have to leave it to fate from there, or expect the sort of things that might happen and try to anticipate them like, oh, it's gonna be really loud, so I should have a few minutes or a few seconds of sound to sort of help get them ready to turn up, get the volume right, you know, before I jump into the first words of the story, that sort of thing. But you can also, with my thing, you can also leave, you can walk half of the of the tour and, and stop, and you know, you would have, um, you know, you wouldn't miss anything, I would say. Uh, there's not like an overarching narrative through through the one and a half hour. Uh, although, I mean, there is a a nice piece towards the end with Hetty Jones, who's been living there since the 50s, I think, um, who, whose house was almost torn down when these developers were building a, a big hotel next to her. And, uh, but they saved her building. So it's, it just kind of sums up a lot of... Um, and she she reads a poem about her uh, kitchen sink, um, her old kitchen sink, and so it sums up all these ideas uh, of gentrification that has been touched upon before. But uh, but you don't really need it. I think you can you can um, just there's a stop halfway through at a German beer garden, and you can get a beer and a sausage, <laughs> and and if you made it that far, it's it's all good. You know? <laughs> Well, thank you all so much.